Hello and welcome to another episode of Flynn's Talk. We're uh, well and truly away with, with what's become quite an interesting series. Uh, I'm Jack Levitt, one half of the hosting duo. The other half is Jeremy Gelman. Jez, welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here for yet another episode. We're actually going to invite in our third voice, Jez, uh, straight off the top, um, which is exciting. Jesse Greenwood, psychologist extraordinaire. We're running with that. Um, welcome, mate. Thank you. Good to be here. We'll delve in um, a little bit more to the work that you do. Um, of course, you work for Headspace down in Hobart. So um, we're zooming in, uh, connecting remotely, which has been which has been somewhat of a way of life. Um, but your folks actually uh, are, are both veterinarians, and you were friends with Flynn um, through quite an interesting way uh, that you guys met. Why don't we go with that first? Um, your connection to all of this. I met Flynn. Uh, or I think about 2016 at a charity bike ride that we were, had, I think, across five days riding 550 kilometres um, to raise money oh, for... Easy. Um, yeah, look, physically it was the hardest thing I think I have ever done. Um, and Flynn pretty much refused to change gears the whole time. And so whether he was going <laughs> uphill or downhill, uh, he was, yeah, he... Just was an absolute machine. Um, sounds, sounds about right. But yeah, so we raised raising a heap of money for um, some uh, orphanages over there that were set up after the tsunami. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was a really really cool experience, and yeah, made a made a really good friend out of it. From yeah. memory, I think Flynn Flynn decided to go like two weeks before the actual event or something oh, had had no had had no preparation had a shitty old bike and just decided <laughs> yep i'm doing this i'm going for it which which is a tea to who he was yeah he um he was volunteering for uh, the big umbrella i think yep and um they were loosely connected to my work and so uh, me and one of the other people riding organised a fundraiser um, and they gave the Big Umbrella some tickets to come along and he happened to be on the be at that and I think he kind of decided then that he was going to join us um, but it wasn't that yeah. long before we left. Oh, and there would just never have been any other way than for him to join unconventionally. Um, just yeah. I remember he was um, like, I got to start training. I was like, for what? Oh, I'm going to ride a bike across Thailand, like 500 odd k's, whatever. I was like, okay, good, good. Like that's awesome. Mm. Um, next thing he was there, and we we're getting getting a couple of photos filtered back, and yeah, what an extraordinary effort. Um, I, I thought us riding unicycles from from uh, Williamstown to Melbourne CBD would be the big adventure, but um, he certainly that was that the preparation. <laughs> Yeah, uh, maybe got to start somewhere. Somewhat well in advance. You actually, uh, Jesse, grew up um, living out the back or to the side of a vet clinic? Yeah, at the back. Um, my parents uh, owned a practice and we had a, we had a small house sort of attached to the back of it um, that was also kind of a bit of a, I guess, a, a zoo, um, a metropolitan zoo, I guess. We had all sorts of animals running around in a very small space. Um but yeah, it was a it was a really cool um, childhood, I guess, in some ways. Did you find yourself sort of having were they all your pets? Did you have much interaction with the with the animals in sort of a day to day life, or were you kept were you kept apart from it? Um, we probably I think we topped out at about sixty to seventy pets, not including the fish. Um, not bad. 
So we had many um, and some quite unusual ones. Uh, we had to rehabilitate a raven at one point and had hmm. him for about three years. Um, so, yeah, and then, of course, there were the patients in the clinic, um, I guess, because we were we lived on site. Um, it meant that it was harder, I guess, for mum and dad to switch off, but also meant that yep. if there was an animal in there overnight that needed to be uh, treated, that they had the capacity to um, kind of, I guess, deliver a more intensive care as well, mm. um, which I guess was a blessing and a curse in some ways. Yeah. Well, actually, that's something that you hear about from a lot of practice owners particularly um, is that there isn't really a defined border between when you're at work and when you're at home. I mean, a lot of them are still on call. Uh, if there are patients staying in overnight, there's overnight uh, changes of drips and, and medication and mm. um, heat, heat mats and things like that to keep animals that are recovering from an operation comfortable. Uh, I was just reading a post on Instagram this morning actually about a, a clinic up in Toowoomba that had a 24-hour nurse actually allocated to a dog that had a snake bite. And you just think like, yeah. wow, no wonder this this takes such an incredible toll. And I guess like for you, you had the menagerie of animals coming in and out. You know, I'm picturing this sort of Dr. Doolittle scenario <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the swing door. And that's the, what was in my head. Bird, I mean, like awesome. What That's every kid's dream. But I suppose you also would have seen the like the not so nice side mm. to veterinary work where like um, you were telling us before we got going about like the the cold store sort of area for animals that had that had gone to heaven and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I guess we were faced with like death was part of our lives. Like we mm. we my parents were always very honest about it, but we were faced with it pretty much from as soon as yeah. we could, you know, talk or even before. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, and I guess the challenges around sort of dealing with some of that stuff. And um, like there were, I, was, I think I, I had a chat to my mum sort of in the lead up to this to see if there was, if she had any ideas about some of it. And she was talking about like, you know, miss it, having to miss birthdays because of emergency um, cesareans or dogs being hit by cars and, you know, kind of that dropping everything because if you don't, then who will? And, I guess the the impact that that has um, can be quite significant at times, um, particularly for mum who I think feels guilty about missing birthdays, but I couldn't even remember it and don't kind of, for me, it, like it was just part of what she needed to do, but for her, obviously, she still holds on to it. Shout out to your mum um, who's, who's now supporting us um, through her clinic in Canterbury, which is really nice. Um, so drop by and say hello if you're, if you're in the area there in Melbourne, but um your, you, you were telling us how um, your dad actually sort of realised that it was all becoming a bit too much as well. And so you've even seen that side of it where he, he was heading down a, a burnt out pathway and um, pulled back and found some other ways to get his veterinary kick, I suppose, rather than just clinic work. Yeah, he definitely um, became quite jaded in working in the clinic and uh, really struggled um, with it um, and that sort of impacted his mental health quite significantly um, and sort of yeah he just he lost that real um, kind of drive and passion for it and I guess the best probably thing you can refer to it as probably compassion fatigue like he just he was tired he was burnt out and he just didn't have anything else to really give um, which you know when that's your business and that's how you support your family it, it's a very trapped way to feel. 
It's actually one of the things we've we've touched on a bit um, and we'll keep delving into, but it's actually the ability for veterinarians to find something else um, that they, they are interested in or a research area and find projects through universities or animal welfare groups or, um, you know, uh, even um, endangered species and all that kind of stuff, like you mentioned, that there's an opportunity that if clinical work is is draining everything you've got or it just isn't making you tick. And for some, clinical work is it. Like some vets just go, I'm on here. I love the, the human interaction. I love that all of that, the fostering of the human-animal bond that it's talked about. But for some, it's just finding the different thing to do with animals. Yeah, and, and I, I probably get the contrast of both. I think my mum my is someone who I, she will continue to practice because she, she, she really loves it and she has her tough days and tough moments. But it's that human-animal interaction um, for her is just part of what makes her tick. Whereas for my dad, um, he he finds other ways to to use those skills and contribute into something that he finds meaning in. Um, and I guess he was he it took him probably longer than he would have liked to break that mold. But since he has, he really hasn't looked back. One of the other things with uh, that's a common mis- misconception um, with veterinarians is. Yeah, that they all drive flash cars and um, you know have don't have pockets big enough to put all the uh, the, the notes in. Um, but I suppose that's one of the things for you growing up. Um, was that it? Was that a perception you had to sort of uh, break through? Yeah, absolutely. It was really challenging actually um, because people would hear your parents are vets and they would that assume that you were a really wealthy family. Um, and so we, I, like, we had to deal with that. But also, then I'd come home, and the bank manager would be around every couple of weeks, trying to work out how to manage the debts in the business and keep it running. And you know, this the, that financial stress that mum and dad were under just to kind of support the family. And so, I guess that misconception was really challenging because it, it it would also mean that kind of when you'd correct people, they just wouldn't believe you as well. And so it, it definitely played a massive, uh, uh, had a massive toll on, I guess, on us in terms of our well-being and our ability to just talk to our friends about some of the stuff that was happening at home because they just didn't take it seriously. Yeah, because the the public opinion knows better, right? You know, and there's so many things out there that we're, I suppose, <laughs> we're we're trying to unravel, like, a, and not just us alone, but um, Dr. Nadine Hamilton's doing amazing work in that space too, out of Queensland, and trying to unravel and reverse on a lot of these um, public perceptions and, and give people the reality to a lot of this stuff, which is often coming from basically out of thin air. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and, it, and, and, and I guess the, the stress of the business and the, the uh, compassion fatigue that my dad felt was a massive contributor to, you know, my parents' divorce and to, I guess, those sorts of issues within the family, um, you know, me and my sister both, had our own sort of issues through high school and trying to manage those in terms of our own mental health um, and get through that, um, you know, and, and it's it would be naive not to think that some of that kind of hadn't filtered through um, to us in our ways of dealing and coping and, yeah, and the stress we were under. Well, that's the thing, like your parents being being active and working as veterinarians, was creating stress, creating anxiety and an anxious environment potentially at home for you. So, um, so important for us, like as animal lovers and we, we care about our dog or our cat or whatever it might be, uh, we feel like we might want to have an emotional outburst 
towards a vet or a nurse or whoever it might be because something's expensive or something didn't go the way you wanted. But that vet's a human. That They've got a family. They've got a story of their own. They've got people that are dependent on their physical and mental health just as much as, as anyone. Absolutely. And, and yeah, and, and that emotional kind of manipulation is really challenging. And I know that, uh, well, most of the vets I've met at least have a story because they also connect with the animals they're treating. You know, they, they get to see them throughout their lifetime and see them at different moments, both at their best and worst. Um, I know that mum's got a, a cat in the clinic called Buzz, who's the, um, who's an absolute, he's cheeky, but he's, He's really, he's, he's lovely um, and a wonderful cat. But, you know, the reason she ended up with him was because uh, he had, he was quite sick and needed a relatively risky surgery and a chance of survival. Um, and it was going to cost a fair bit of money. And the owners basically turned around and said, we don't want to spend that money on the animal. And my mum said, I, well, I don't want to euthanize it. Um, and they came, basically came to a compromise when my mum was like, well, what if I do the surgery? And if the cat survives, then you pay me cost price because I really, I really like your animal and I, don't, I want to give him the chance to live. And so she did the surgery, Buzz survived, um, and she then contacted the owners who basically decided that they didn't want him back. And so mum ended up with the cat out of it. And he's been there for a number of years now and is loved and has the best life but you know those sorts of decisions and those sorts of things you're faced with you can't save every animal that you know owners can't afford a particular procedure and you can't yeah you can't be the everything for everyone so yeah it's challenging and yeah it's it's definitely a hard decision when when you're that invested into as you say you you're experiencing the whole animal's life cycle when you're that invested in the animal and in the profession, it, it must be that difficult to make those hard decisions. And, and obviously it takes a toll on your, on your mental health. Uh, you said the cat's name's Buzz. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were telling me when we were chatting lead up to all this about how uh, the trend of pet names was that your pets were always named after another animal, i.e. a cat yes. called Koi, like a fish, or a dog called Viper. What it, so how did Buzz get through the net? Uh, Buzz wasn't isn't technically a family pet. He's a ah, he's the clinic pet. So the called. nurses named him. Um, right. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yep. So, but I mean, I've got a dog called Toad, and I think my mum's got a Doberman called Piper, which is named after a sandpiper, which is a type of bird. Oh As I goodness. said, once you once you have a few, you've got to get really creative. Um, <laughs> so you've got to find different ones. We've had yeah, a boa, minky. All sorts. Do you get any weird looks at the dog park when you're calling for spider or, or toad? Um, I think a lot of people think I'm saying Toby when I'm actually saying Toby. Yep. Um, yep. There are definitely people that have known my dog for 10 years that still think his name's Toby. Um, um, so, yeah, you get a couple of odd odd looks occasionally. Um, or people either go, that's the best name ever or that's just weird. Yep. Um, and my fallback tends to be, I was 14, give me a break. Um, but <laughs> I think it's great. I've got it. I, I need a lift. Jez, you and I need to lift because we've got, um, my cat's called Maisie. It, it was, she was Hold named on, after you, a friend of ours. Are you, 
Are you dissing my naming abilities? No, no. Nina, the Border Terrier, is beautiful, but I, I, yeah. we've just gone with pretty simple, old-fashioned female names for female animals. Mm, I, just, I, I think you should speak for yourself. Nina's named after the one of the best jazz singers to ever be around. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> Although I, can, <laughs> I, I don't win points for creativity <laughs> because we had a black Labrador girl called missy thanks mum and <laughs> yeah, that's that's not very inventive yeah no it is not and we had a ginger cat called Jinjin. uh so yeah not very creative at all we did have growing up we had chickens and ducks and we had over over the life cycle we had three ended up having three ducks and all three were called duncan so i don't think we i don't think we were a very imaginative back in that day either. duncan the first second and third we did have a rabbit called hopple <laughs> So, you know, it's, very good. Um, but when you have 30 guinea pigs and they're all named after foods, it gets really hard to keep finding good foods to call an animal. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. There's there's a lot of struggles. There's a there's there's a lot of hardship to veterinary work. Um, but I know uh, having visited a number of clinics now and, and chatted with a lot of vets, um, particularly up in Toowoomba, uh, Toowoomba Family Vets, uh, we had a fun game of uh, Pictionary, veterinary theme Pictionary. So that was that was interesting. But oh, yes. I suppose the the insight it gave me, Jesse, is that um, there's there's the the gloomy side to vet, but there's a quirky fun side too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> You've got some stories around um, some some funny family portraits. Yes, uh, we have some great photos that are held carefully under lock and key, never to see the light of day. Um, the, <laughs> oh no, we'll be posting them, them on our we'll Facebook. Them. Um, I think there's one of about there's one of like three generations of our family all holding a, a ferret um, in this weirdly orchestrated uh, family photo where no one knows where to look, and um, it's just it would it would make it into one of those books of uh, you know. I guess funniest family photos or whatever. Um, there's photos of us, yeah, yeah. you know, in like a, a I guess this kind of a the jaw of a great white shark. Um, you know, the, the the four of us on family holidays. My we used to go camping, and my dad used to terrorize the uh, local wildlife, and he, he'd he'd catch lizards and put them in a tank and then just look at them for a day and then release them again. Um, some of which were quite big and quite scary. Um, his favorite was definitely to try and catch water dragons because, uh, you have to be really stealthy or else they'd jump in the water and run away from you. So it sounds like you live with your, your very own sort of David Attenborough meets Steve Irwin, uh, type character. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, dad, Dad's always been a little bit uh, like that. He he's he's very passionate about uh, I guess the environment and sustainability, and has runs lots of projects on um, I guess helping endangered species and trying to understand why um, different animals are fading and why others aren't. And he usually has some pretty good ideas if he can find someone that'll listen. But yeah, he 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 quite proudly tells a story of when he was a teenager and. Um, he found a very sick goanna and reared it um, back to health um, because it was very old and very big. And when he started vet school, his mum told him he had to get rid of it. And so he, um, I think he called the zoo and said, I've got a goanna. Um, can you please come and can someone please come and pick it up? And they didn't believe him. And he was trying to convince them that he actually had this goanna and that it was massive. And 
they eventually came and picked it up, couldn't believe that he was actually telling the truth. And the Gawainawa ended up being flown to New Zealand because it was such a good uh, specimen of um, our wildlife and ended up in a zoo over there. Incredible. I mean, I can't imagine that would be an everyday occurrence from them getting a call that (laughs) that some random bloke's got a Gawainawa in his backyard that is raised. No, no. Although if they did know my dad, they probably wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) Dad in particular was always fascinated by reptiles and so he was... He still teaches at Melbourne Uni um, around, particularly around fish and kind of worked on ways to um, do surgery on, on fish um, because goldfish can live 20 plus years and become part of the family. And um, he wanted to find a way to be able to, you know, remove a tumour or to deliver certain things. And so he he found ways to basically keep a fish alive while out of water and be able to do the surgery. And my mum is particularly interested in sort of uh, rats and mice and rabbits and ferrets and which are still considered exotics, um, just a different type. And so you're now working, you're now working for Headspace and, and you've obviously become a psychologist since then. Is that, was that sort of a pathway that was influenced by, by being around sort of the life cycle? I mean, they were animals, you're now working with people, but that sort of dealing with loss, dealing with births, dealing with dealing with all the grief and everything around that, was that something that sort of influenced your decision to go down that pathway or was it a completely random choice? Um, oh, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, yeah. I think. Um, for a long, long time I always said I wanted to be a vet. Like up until my teenage years I kind of thought that would be the way I would go and um, animals are a huge part of my life and um, I am – uh, like, yeah, they're, I'm hugely passionate about um, animals and animal welfare and that sort of thing. But I think in the end, I guess, um, being exposed to a lot of highly emotional content for most of my life and um, kind of wanting to find something that was my, my own and sort of a bit of a fresh start um, while also, I guess, working within that care space kind of ended like sort of led to, I guess, that sort of path. Um, and I, yeah, I think when I started uni, I didn't really have an idea and I was like, oh, psychology sounds cool. Um, let's just see where that goes. And, you know, 12 and a half years later, um, I'm, I'm still there. Was there any pressure from your parents to either go into veterinary or to not go into veterinary? No, not at all. Um, my, my parents are pretty good um, about kind of just letting um, both me and my sister kind of follow our own paths. And if yeah. I had wanted to go, um, they would have supported me. But also, yeah, yeah they were happy for me to yeah. kind of do my own thing. Um, and I reckon as I was probably getting into that uni age, my dad probably would have told me not to do it, to be honest, yeah. um, based on where he was. So you're living in Hobart now and, and working with Headspace. Um, I guess it'd be good to know what it is that you actually do with Headspace and, and the kind of work you find yourself doing um, week in, week out. Um, so I guess Headspace as a service is, um, uh, I guess, early. We focus on early intervention and prevention, um, essentially. Uh, we work with 12 to 25-year-olds. So, um, you know, on the 26th birthday, unfortunately, uh, the way our funding works and our model um, 
people have to find an alternative source of support. But yeah, it's sort of, it's that space that um, is a really pivotal time in mental health. Um, I think the statistic is 75% of ongoing mental health issues and mental health issues in general start before the age of 25. Um, so if you can get someone early and before it develops into, I guess, something more severe, um, then you can really provide a toolkit and help, uh, make, I guess, a lifetime of difference, um, and, and help build that resilience and ability to kind of manage those, uh, you know, mental health issues, um, throughout life more effectively. Yeah. And, the, and you talk about that 12 to 25 age bracket i mean it's a leading cause of death suicide's a leading cause of death for aussies between 15 and 44 um which is just so that 12 to 25 is clearly a significant chunk of that time frame in life and not only that it's you're going through high school um all sorts of things are happening in life and with your body and with people around you um right up to transitioning to uni and then and for many by 25 have started professional life um I'm not really heading towards a question as such. I guess it's more a comment around the fact that those years are so important, so important, right? Absolutely. And I think that's why um, Headspace as an organisation um, are not just focused on, I guess, the clinical work, but also on building awareness and uh, having conversations and um, I guess normalising some of those experiences. And also it, we're not just, I think, um, we're not just mental health either. Um, we have we do physical health and sexual health and uh, work and study support. Um, you know, uh, and uh, alcohol and other drug um, work. So there's a whole bunch of factors that come come into it. You know, and our, our resources aren't just for necessarily the young people that use the service, but also for family and friends who might have concerns but not know, might not know what to do. Um, and all that sort of stuff. So it's it tries to be, I guess, a holistic, um, well, as holistic as we can be approach to managing those challenges that you're talking about, whether that be, you know, changes in our bodies, changes in our lives, transitioning from school into uni, um, that sort of, you know, kind of those years or anything in between. Um, and it's also a really challenging period because it's when you're trying to build independence but you're still, but in some ways, we're still quite dependent, and so that desire to be independent often then can have an impact on help seeking as well. And that's why it's really important, I think, personally, to kind of try and normalise that and kind of help people see that actually it's it's not a it's not at all a sign of weakness. And in fact, I think sometimes putting your hand up and saying, "Hey, maybe I need to talk to someone or do something about this actually is a sign of strength. And I think that's something that Headspace actually does really well. They, To me, they seem like a very sort of approachable organisation where it's not, as you mentioned, it's not really all clinical. You're going in for a psych assessment or anything like that. It's a really gentle way of getting young people in who often are terrified by what they're going through and what they're experiencing um, and getting that, getting that sort of gentle, gentle build of help and services, and even as you mentioned, getting the parents involved. That it's not just about young people. That you can also get parents involved with services, with information to help them with with how to help their children, so to speak. Yeah, and, and we're also a bit of a pathway service. So we we acknowledge that we're not 
uh, the perfect fit for everyone. But what we do try and do no is, one ever is. Yeah, and then what we do try and do is connect people in with a service that might be might be better suited or specialised in a certain area um, to give that extra kind of level of support or or work alongside us while we kind of support those people. Um, in, in, with their needs and, and through their journey. One of the things as well, um, which is worth shouting out, is that uh, stress breeds stress, right? So even when we're talking about veterinarians, um, adult veterinarians with families and kids, like it's that support that parents could ask for for their kids and, and all around that early intervention and prevention work, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, there, we know that mental health runs in families. We know that there's, you, you know, uh, I guess both um, genetic and social kind of causes. But if our, you know, if we're if we have parents in highly stressed jobs or that they're kind of struggling with their own mental health, then, you know, often uh, the younger generation and the kids and family members also are kind of, um, that's filtering through to them. And so kind of having that scope to talk to a service or ask for advice or um, just being aware that sometimes, you know, um, we need to check in with the people around us um, as well as ourselves. And I think, it, I mean, it's definitely, it's def- not being a parent I wouldn't know personally, but it's definitely always been a daunting experience for parents to be able to breach that subject with their children about about mental health, about mental mm. mental illness, and about receiving care. So having those tools and services available to them is an excellent thing. Absolutely, and I think as well, um, like it's really important to keep in mind that services like Headspace and um, you know Kids Helpline, Lifeline, mm. yeah. they're really happy for concerned others to call and ask for advice about a friend or a family member it doesn't just have to be the person who uh might be going through those um you know difficult times it can also be the people who have noticed and like hey i i want to do something i don't know what to do Mm. it's someone to kind of bounce ideas off and talk to and and formulate a plan yeah absolutely and and speaking of formulating formulating plans Every plan for every person is different, right? Like so that you are working with individuals on on their plan that works for them, and that's I suppose the point as well of reaching out to get to get early help if something's not going right or not going the way you might think for you or for someone else. Absolutely, it's not one size fits all. You know, it's we all have our own stories. We all have the things that work for us, um, our own challenges that mean that every everything is different and. Um, we need to be really aware of not trying to put people into a box um, and kind of allowing for that uh, individuality to really shine through. You talk about sort of like the person-centred approach and, and having people as sort of the, having people as the leaders in their own journey and making making the decisions in their life, which is a f- relatively new thing um, that, that's something that works and something that should be done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes... Uh, we make a decision and we try and it might not be the right time or it might not be the right fit and people can sometimes then uh, decide that it's not for them. And I guess one of the really important messages is that, you know, just because it hasn't worked doesn't mean it won't work. And, um, you know, one of my colleagues talks about psychologists being like a pair of shoes. You know, it's not one size fits all and sometimes they fit but you still might not like the style. And so... 
you know, it's important that you kind of shop around and look for the right one or give yourself the chance to find someone who you might actually connect with rather than um, having, you know, uh, rather than kind of feeling like it's all too hard because that person's not right for you. And that's, that's a really hard thing to do because actually it's not about the person seeking help in that instance. It might be about the person on the other end of the phone or in the room with you that's just not going to click. We don't get along with everyone. We can't be friends with everyone. Um, so you've just got to find the right person or people or organisation that fits you. Yeah, and, and not being not being afraid or not being worried about about saying to someone, "Oh, this isn't really working. Uh, do you mind if do you mind if I find someone else?" Or or using multiple people at once. You could use multiple services at once. You can see multiple clinicians at once. It's whatever works for you is the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you tend. Yeah, you'd have multiple services looking at different areas. I mean, you mm. wouldn't see multiple psychologists yeah. at one time. Yeah. That would yeah. create yeah. a whole lot of chaos. <laughs> but um, you know, yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, too many cooks. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There, there, you, there are different needs in our lives. You know, you might need someone to help with housing, and someone to mm. help with food, and someone to help with mental health, and you know, someone to help with vocation education, and all of those are very specialised areas and it's, it's not a one-stop shop sometimes. So we're obviously on the uh, the trail of, of raising awareness for a particular industry, but uh, I suppose what's important to remember in all of this is that something that you might be experiencing, although you are a veterinarian, as an example, doesn't mean there isn't help for you because you're in that particular profession. There are, there are things that people are experiencing in all professions and all parts of life that will have common uh, common connections between um, how you're feeling. So we're, we're, we're um, campaigning for that and then hopefully uh, raising, raising more awareness um, with every day and, and with every time we walk and talk. I think that when we talk about the veterinary industry as well, I think one of the advantages of an organisation like Headspace is in that early intervention and prevention space, hopefully what we're also doing is creating, um, I guess, a more resilient and... Uh, I get people with more resources that our next generation of veterinarians might be able to then, you know, hopefully start to, um, I guess, reduce some of those suicide rates and some of those issues they have. It, it doesn't start once you're in a career. It starts when you're, you know, it starts when it needs to. Um, so we shouldn't, necessarily just focus on the vets that are already there we should also focus on the vets of the future and and the the people that are coming up and making sure that if we if we build that resilience then hopefully some of the awful stats around veterinarians might also then come down um and also if we build compassion in the community hopefully we don't get that same kind of um I guess that some of those emotional blackmail type moments that come um not because clients mean to but I guess people becoming more aware about how their actions can impact others as well. And that's it. That's one of the. I mean, that's one of the big things we're trying to achieve is reducing that, reducing that stigma about around mental health, making it making it more accessible for people to talk about, for people to open up about, but also that early intervention side of things, which is the most important, which is giving people the tools to cope with things before they actually happen. So when when it does happen, then you know, oh, I've got this, 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 this tool that I can that I can work through. I know if I need extra help, I can I can ask for it, and I know all the different pathways instead of having this huge pressure on your shoulders and not knowing where to go with it. And it's really okay not to be okay. Like 
There's yeah. nothing wrong yeah. with not feeling okay. Um, you know, uh, particularly at the moment, I, I have clients who um, uh, lives have got more stressful and, and feel like they've gone backwards. And, and I guess that's sort of, there are times where emotions are very, you know, are to be expected and, and it's not about going backwards. It's about a new challenge and it's okay to feel that way. And it's what we then do with that and how, how we then kind of move forward that really is what's important. Because once we're feeling a certain way, no amount of thinking about it or fighting it or trying to ignore it is going to change the fact that that is how we're feeling. That's it. And you talk about Headspace Office, um, the door being it virtual or the physical one, depending on, you know, um, the situation is always open. But there's also that work that Headspace does with community educators heading out to various places. <laughs> um, do you want to talk a little bit about what about what they do? Uh, yeah, I mean, so we have... Um, at Headspace Hobart, we have a community educator whose basic role is to go out to whether that be high schools or community events, set up kind of stalls and stands and um, and kind of create a space to just talk about mental health and raise awareness and, um, you know, engage people in what in sort of, I guess, creating a more general understanding and continuing to chip away at that stigma. Um, and, and there's also Headspace also run, is part of the BU program, um, which is, a, a, I guess, the, the Headspace role there is that there's a team of people that can roll into schools after there's been a, a suicide or, um, or a death in that community and go in and support the teachers and the students and, and try to help. Uh, I guess manage that situation in a way that encourages conversation and encourages healthy coping rather than um, I guess running the risk of, of people kind of uh, I guess shutting themselves away and isolating themselves because we know that one of the big risk factors for suicide is exposure to suicide. And I think that's that's a big change that's that seemed to have only happened fairly recently. I think like when we were in school I knew of I knew of a couple of suicides that were kind of swept under the rug and you weren't really entirely sure if they were actually suicides or what happened. Um, and it wasn't really talked about. People didn't get any help, and it's such a—I mean, it's such an important thing, as you now know, that to be able to to be able to receive that help. Absolutely, and I think um, suicide, and you know, I, I don't think it's unreasonable by any stretch. But suicide and talking about suicide scares a lot of people. Um, it's not an easy thing to yeah, talk about. Um, if they say I am suicidal, what you know, what the hell can I do about it? Type stuff. It's it's not an easy conversation to have, but. It's really important to keep um, in mind that asking about suicide is not going to make someone more likely to kill themselves. Um, in fact, it it kind of it can be this massive secret someone's holding, and sometimes just being able to say those words can have a huge um, impact on allowing that person to then kind of start to work through a healing process. Um, and so. Yeah, that kind of those conversations, I think, are really, really vital and, and that we just need to remind people that, yes, it can be hard to ask, but actually, you know, the worst case scenario is they say no and look at you like you're an idiot and ultimately nothing changes. So or the best case scenario is that this is a person who's been really struggling and finally has an opportunity to actually um, to actually let that out and you know, I think I know you guys do a lot of work with um, Are You Okay and have kind of had a bit to do with them. And, you know, that's why I think their message is so, so important. 
um, so, so important in connecting with that stuff. That's it. And, and their whole message being, are you okay? One simple question and you, you might get the response that is like, yeah, of course I am. If that's the worst thing that happens out of that situation, then that is a great result because that person at least just went, hey, Jez thought about me today. Um, I matter to someone. All that messaging we've heard, Jez, with, with chatting with different people. But Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it could be the conversation that changes someone's life, that saves yeah. someone's life. Particularly at the moment, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk in the community about really needing to support each other and get behind each other and check in with each other and... Um, and it's also important not to feel like you're, you, it has to be you, you know, if you're worried about someone, but you don't think you've got the capacity to, I guess, um, engage, whether that be, um, because your own mental health is struggling or you just don't think you're the right person, then there's no shame in kind of sending a message to someone else, you know, um, you know, like Jez, you might message me and, you know, say, I'm, I'm worried about you know, this person and I might then connect with them because I might be in a better position to do it. Yeah, exactly right. And I think it's something that Catherine, who we spoke to, who's who's the CEO of Are You OK, stressed a lot, which is you have to look after yourself first. If you're not in the right space to be to be having that conversation with someone, that that that's all right. That that it's that it's you first. And once you're in that in in that well enough space, then you can you can go out and try and help someone else. I thought it would be good for you, Jesse, to just just give the listeners a bit of a a bit of an idea of if they haven't had anything to do with Headspace before, how they can contact them um, and how they can get involved if they if they feel like it. Yeah. Um, so I guess there's Headspace centres scattered throughout um, the country, uh, and so I guess a quick Google search of your local centre will give you a contact number that you can just call. Alternatively, there is a national hotline, um, which I think is 1-800-650-890, which you can call for advice, and it's also a bit of a crisis support service. Um, And there's an eHeadspace as well, which is like an online chat service that you can reach out to, again, if you're in a bit of having a having a bit of a difficult time or if you're just sort of trying to work out what your next steps are, um, you know, there's plenty of different ways that you can access services. Um, you know, your local GPs will have a pretty good idea. So you could go and have a chat to your doctor and then they can help put a referral through. Lots of, lots of different ways. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for taking some time to to chat to us and and we hope to see you down in Hobart soon for, for the Flynn's Walk Hobart edition. Yes, well, hopefully, hopefully we can get back to uh, being able to do a few more things, and and I guess the the borders reopen, um, and then we yep. can definitely look to make that happen. Exactly right. Well, as you said, watch this space. Yes, watch this space. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much, mate. And we are looking forward to coming down to Hobart, and hopefully kicking off a Flynn's walk there. Also, don't forget to subscribe uh, or follow, depending on where you are listening to make sure that you know when new episodes drop. Uh, Wednesday mornings is the time. Give us a like, give us a follow on our socials. Facebook and Instagram are are, are active. Um, And also we're selling some custom-made Flynn's Walk beanies at the moment. They're 25 bucks um, and our proceeds from those go back into helping support the veterinary industry. Uh, You can jump on flynnswalk.com.au and they're there on the homepage. Thanks again for listening. That's all we've got time for and we'll uh, speak to you in the next episode of Flynn's Talk.